I'm your host, Tally Goff, Assistant Professor of Literary Theory and Cultural History at Cornell University. Born in London and based in New York City, my research negotiates what it means for me to be a Black woman from the United Kingdom and the haunted legacies of other Atlantic crossings. I explore these questions as a writer, curator, and a DJ, specializing in the narratives that emerge from histories of race, debt, and technology. My research is rooted in literatures and theories of labor that center Black feminist engagements with indigeneity and Asian diasporic racial formations. Much of my art and sign design practice explores what it means for me to be of Afro-Asian heritage, committed to forming intellectual communities beyond institutions. I am the founder of the Dark Laboratory, an engine for the study of race, technology, and ecology through digital storytelling, including virtual reality and DJing. And I'm Shannon Gleason, a sociologist and professor of labor relations, law, and history at the Cornell ILR School. I also co-direct the Migrations Initiative here at Cornell, and I'm an affiliate of the Latina Latino Studies Program and Brooks School of Public Policy. My research sits at the intersection of labor and migration studies, draws on both qualitative and quantitative research methods, and is inherently comparative and transnational. My work is interested in how low-wage workers mobilize their rights, the importance of state actors in driving and sometimes mitigating the precarity, and the role that civil society organizations play in implementing policies and helping workers navigate regulatory bureaucracies. My current book focuses on the role of immigration status in driving workers' experiences and the specific ways that race and gender intersect with various forms of legal status. I'm the daughter of an Anglo father and a Mexican immigrant mother, and many of the themes that we discussed this summer were deeply personal to me. And we were privileged to be in conversation with 30 colleagues this summer who hail from a variety of disciplines, including art, architecture, Africology, design studies, geography, history, literatures, sociology, and many more. In this episode, participants from the Cornell Migrations Summer Institute, Lali Sosa Rudell, professor at Pierce College, and John Hopkins PhD student Kelsey Moore, and Lydia Camel, a master's student in landscape architecture at Cornell, as well as Nancy Morales, a PhD student at the University of California at Santa Barbara, sat down with Tufts University professor Kim Bain. They talk about land as evidence graves in South Carolina, 19th century colonial Latin America, and moving away from metaphors of the ocean. They represented the excerpts of Atslan Group, which also included members Esmeralda Arizon Palomera and Monica Ramirez Bernal. You know, this got me thinking about this idea that you, as you have pushed the boundaries of us thinking about breath, right, something we take for granted uh, and and yet had to really um, confront, right, recently with this, with all that's happened, is that what are ways in which you perceive it? You'd really like people to push these boundaries and keep thinking about breath. Is there any kind of ideas you have that you, you think, I, I think it would be really great if you guys, if different people did this and took up yeah. that idea? Um, ooh, that's a, an excellent question. Um, 
I think it can go in very many ways. So one space that I've been really heartened to see is, do you all know about the NAP ministry? Oh, I oh, I love telling folks about the NAP ministry because if you don't know about it, it's definitely an account. It's an Instagram account slash, um, I want to say like a movement of sorts um, that you should be following. But the NAP ministry, um, basically, oh yes, Kelsey, yes. It's the favorite. Yes, I agree, Kelsey. You're totally right. So essentially what it is, is um, it is a movement to remind folks that rest is so central to revolutionary and radical praxis, right? And not just rest, but like radical rest, right? So we're not talking about the kind of rest that you do where, you know, you go to bed so you can get your five hours of sleep to get back up and go to work. Um, you go to bed to get your three hours of sleep to get back up and do more work. It's like, no, that's not the rest that we're talking. We're talking about complete, total, radical rest, right? And what does that look like and how do you dream of that, right? So one of the things I really like about that or I find really inspiring about that is that it is um, at its heart a refusal of a system that we've, well, not, I keep saying, saying we've, and I, I mean that in a very, very general way. Some of us maybe, <laughs> but it's, a very, it's been about refusing a system that's been glorified um, overall as being, uh, the things aimed for, we can think about hustle culture, you know, and how that was really important, um, and how that's been completely flipped on its head now. And we can think, of course, about how self-care has been super hyper-modified and it's in fact, uh, sometimes a practice of self-soothing. So it's like, oh, you want self-care? Go and, um, buy this, like, you know, care for self-care and I'll go buy some stuff at Walmart sort of thing, right? Like you, you get the idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what we're trying to think about is how do we, um, build community around um, certain kinds of missions or certain kinds of practices rather than certain kinds of objects, if that makes sense, or um, certain kinds of uh, detrimental um, infrastructures. So I bring that all of that up because one of the things that I've been thinking through is exhaustion um, in my work, right? Um, one of the ways, especially for when we're thinking about Black women and Black women's political exhaustion, one of the things that I, I think about is, you know, what are the performances or the postures or the positions that the body takes when exhausted? And one of those is sighing, you know? I can think about how many black women who are like, who I've known in my life, who um, have, are in the political movement, et cetera, the sigh gestures to so much and means so much, right? Like how does the sigh actually manifest? What does it actually do to the body to sigh, right? Um, and, I, and I bring that up because I think when we start thinking about breath and when we start thinking about the ways that it's one invisible, but also the ways that it's um, touching upon different kinds of senses, right? So when when you hear a sigh that actually produces some kind of effect, hopefully, on you, um, I mean, not oftentimes folks, it, it goes by and you don't really notice. But what I, I try to do is say, okay, if sighing is this sort of not just this um, measure of exhaustion, it's not a measure of exhaustion, but is a certain kind of performance, a refusal, um, attention to exhaustion but in fact also a twisting of that exhaustion to produce a different kind of relationality because it actually is doing work that sigh right when you sigh it produces a reaction what happens when we actually start paying attention to these kinds of small moments of breath right when someone sighs or for example uh, one of the things that uh, for this project was really difficult is you know i i try to attend to sort of mundane everyday moments of breath and breathing um as well as sort of spectacular moments and for the spectacular moments that has meant oftentimes um, listening to recordings of police brutality, et cetera. Um, and I knew very quickly and I would not be able to watch these videos. Um, and at first I somehow thought that I would be able to listen to them. And in fact, I quite quickly learned that I couldn't listen to them either. But one of the things that I realized very quickly is of how underneath the thread of all of these videos is panting breath, right? And, you know, I mentioned earlier about the sort of long histories of 
you know, um, the, the quote unquote poor panting slave. That is, um, the, the trope that we see in the 19th century and the 18th century around fugitive enslaved persons. Um, and so as we're thinking about these sort of longer genealogies, we can think about, okay, how does the panting here actually connect us to, um, this longer history of thinking about freedom struggles, right? Um, and how it might it connect us to futures that we're dreaming about, right? Uh, so they're all kind of um, spread out in very many ways. Um, one text that I really love uh, for thinking about this more, and especially especially, is um, Alexis Pauline Glam's Undrowned, which I thought was a fantastic taking up of breath and breathing in the aquatic sense. Um, uh, and if you haven't, you know, checked out, you should definitely do it because at the end of the, of the text, there are all of these exercises that you can do, right? So like att- intentionality around breathing, et cetera. So um, those are just a couple of touchstones. This is fabulous because I had, I was so, um, I'm taken aback by how connected it is with like everyday life and the things we can do, you know, as you bring in the nap ministry or, or this kind of like a um, breathing exercises. And um, I think that's, that's really amazing to see both academic and everyday life in a way that's, I think can, we can do a lot with. Um, <laughs> so you know, we really wanted to touch a little bit too on your second project, even though, you know, we could talk so much about your first one, um, because we are looking for all this uh, inspiration of different directions, and we really love what you have done. Um, we were looking at your work on, on the soil and dirt, and yeah, and yeah, and so we're thinking like a couple of different things. Um, we're struck by this idea of what refusals emerge from the soil, this, mm. this thing you state here. And we were thinking, you know, we would love to hear more about this. What might we, mm-hmm. you know, yes. what's in there? <laughs> what's- yes. I, I love that. I love that so much because I, I, I realized as a side note uh, quickly that I am really just fascinated by, I guess, what could be called abstraction or the ways that um, blackness um, and it's attentive, uh, 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 categories become abstracted, you know, under certain kinds of uh, power structures, right? So um, one of the ways is through breath and breathing, etc. Um, and the other one that I'm attending to in my second book is around soil and dirt um, and other kinds of, I call, call them, quote unquote, dark matter, right? Um, so that includes mud, it includes swamps, it includes uh, guano, it includes gold, um, these sort of questions of um, what we consider generally to be, uh, quote unquote, inanimate material matter or et cetera, right? And for me, um, that project really emerged actually from my project around breath and breathing, um, where I was in the archives and I came across these documents. Um, I was reading a bunch of, um, really terrible race science of the 19th century. And I came across these documents, um, that was, uh, expounding upon the, uh, ailments and illnesses of enslaved folks. And one of them was uh, an ailment called basically um, where folks would eat dirt, enslaved persons would eat dirt. And this particular doctor um, was writing all about how this was terrible. It really sucked. Um, It made folks like unable to work and you had to, you know, basically give them time to rest. um, And it would take weeks on end for them to get better, et cetera. And it would really, you know, reduce the productivity of the, of the plantation. Um, I remember reading that at the time, and I was reading this alongside, of course, reading about Samuel Cartwright and his Assistasia, Ikyokika, and et cetera. Um, I remember thinking just like, damn, we got it. Like, you know, do what you got to do to resist and refuse. And, you know, it is, you know, perhaps um, a, a false claim to see that how all acts of refusal, right? Um, but there was some sort of kernel that I found there that I found to be 
um, particularly striking to see that folks were, um, whether it was because of um, starvation, lack of nutrients, whether it was because of a direct uh, self-determined a choice to refuse to work and therefore to choose, to, whatever the, the case might be, I found it very striking that there was this connection. Um, and at the same time that I was reading that, I was reading the 15th century uh, text uh, called The Travels uh, to Guinea. I'm getting the title wrong by Gomez uh, Ianes, um, who is a 15th century explorer from Portugal. And in that, he's uh, explaining, and this is a, a text that's, you know, been explored by uh, several Black study scholars, um, Fortune Spillers, so many others. And essentially in that text, he ex- he describes the incident in which, or the incident in which, um, the first uh, enslaved Black persons were brought to Portugal, right? And it's sort of a moment that is identified as the sort of beginning of um, modernity in the sense of modernity meaning um uh, the beginning of enslavement, indigenous possession, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and in that moment when uh, these uh, indigenous Africans were made captive and brought to Portugal, they were being traded for gold, right? And But they were sort of being uh, likened in the language that was being used to sort of dirt and soil, sort of like their description, the descriptions that were being used to describe these folks, et cetera. Um, and for me, that really sort of connected the two ideas together. And I said, okay, well, we have on the one hand, you know, several centuries later, folks refusing to work or being unable to work through eating dirt. We have on this other hand, this historical record that's suturing blackness with dirt. Um, yes, it's exactly the thing that um, Tiffany King, um, Lethabo King mentions in um, The Black Shoals. Exactly. Um, and then we have all these longer histories of artists taking up dirt and the importance of dirt, right? So we can think of the way that the black belt is not just like a name for a piece that's like, you know, lots of black folk living, but actually, in fact, it's called the black belt because the soil was so fertile, but also it was soil that was fertilized by the blood of individuals who were lynched, right? So there are all these connections with um, blackness and dirt and soil, et cetera, that we see throughout the the sort of long history of modernity, right? Um, But because, you know, one of the sort of uh, core tenets of racial capitalism is to abstract these relations or to abstract the existence of folks, we don't actually see the sort of one-to-one relation between these metaphors and the material conditions of folks. And so I turn to dirt and soil to, to attend to that and I say, okay, how do we think about dirt and soil and mud and swamps and guano, et cetera, as actually um, further constructing the sort of grammars of the world that we see around us, right? If I'm borrowing the language of Sylvia Winter. So that's sort of how the project came into, into being. And it's, it is, there's just so much there. There's so much to attend to. I mean, because of course, like we're thinking about questions of land, right? And like questions of land, of course, are, are involved with questions of territory, questions of nationality, right? So like, how do we attend to all these different global ideas of um, not just blackness, but questions of indigeneity, questions of um, how do we attend to not just nationality and ethnicity, but also questions of um individuals who are uh, identified as being refugees or, uh, quote-unquote, um, undocumented immigrants or illegalized immigrants, right? So, like, how do we think about all these questions? And, like, dirt and soil can help us get to that, um, alongside questions of, you know, the aquatic and the liquid, and et cetera, that Black studies has, you know, attended to, so. That's wonderful. Um, I, I was also curious, like... Um you know, you mentioned too that like moving away from the, the focus on oceans. Yes. Um, yeah, and I thought that was really interesting because I had never I hadn't thought about it that way. Like that we that we that you know that would be really a significant thing to do. Um, and I was curious if you know what what, do you, what kind of moved you in that direction to get you really thinking. About? I mean, you mentioned this this moment. Um, do you think those are something 
that struck you you were kind of experiencing or is there something mm-hmm. about uh, before you jump into your question, Dr. Bain, your your mm-hmm. analysis on soil and dirt um, just really resonated with me because in my own project, um, I'm thinking about um, the same the Santa Cooper project that happened in the 1930s in mm-hmm. South Carolina and the draining of swamps and the clearing of land and thinking of land as evidence um, of erasing Black epistemologies. Yes. Um, and it's mm-hmm. been something that's been sitting with me. I'm a I'm a native South Carolinian. Um, so yeah. it's a story that like when I came across it, it really spoke to my spirit. And also thinking about, you know, they had to remove over six thousand graves um in the kind yes. of like epistemological mm-hmm. and spiritual violence mm-hmm. black folks, mm-hmm. especially in that area, mm-hmm. um, how hoodoo practices were disrupted. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I was really a, a dissertation who, uh, of someone who had interviewed folks who were living during that time. And they were saying that when they dug up graves, they would see the pennies that were placed on um, folks' eyes. And that was like, a, uh, uh, like a direct uprooting of mm-hmm. hoodoo, hoodoo practices, burial practices. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it just really resonates. And now, like, I feel the more I hear you talking, I feel more confident in doing this, this research. Oh, you absolutely should. Am I somewhere? Am I doing too much? And I'm in a department. So I was like, am I, am I doing it? Like, can I use Mm -hmm. land as evidence? Because, you know, evidentiary claims about culture Mm -hmm. and religion, um, in both anthropology and history are based off of how much have you retained and these, these, these kind of um, mm-hmm. rhetorical, um, I guess, criteria that doesn't really fit the material reality of what so many Black Southerners in particular have experienced. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mean to like take over, but I just so have. No. Oh, no, I, you should absolutely continue this project. I mean, this so very intensely because what you're saying is exactly, like, but even far better articulated, right? Um, than I could have even said, right? The question of, um, like who has the body, right? Um, when black folk die is not just a question of who immediately has the body or where, but where the body even ends up after death, right? Um, because we have all these instances of graves being dug up, um, and being bodies being, you know, sort of hidden and thrown away, et cetera. And so I want to read this project. Um, this is a moment of, of us dreaming together. I want to read this project. I need to read this project. It's going to happen. I'm excited for this project. I'm sending you all of the energy to get this project done. Okay. Like it's no, absolutely I'm not done with exams, but it's gone. It's coming. No, no, no. <laughs> That's bureaucracy. That is bureaucracy. That is bureaucracy. Regardless of what happened, like I'm just saying that some projects, like they will happen no matter what. Like exams will happen, whatever, whatever. But like this project, it's it's coming. I can feel the energy around it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it does feel very exciting. Like we are, you know, pulling, like coming up with ideas as we're mm-hmm. going. And so, thank you mm-hmm. guys for for giving. And and I, I don't remember exactly what I asked, but it, I would I would want to share some little something. The reason, the way it struck mm-hmm. me when you're talking about dirt was because in um. I look at colonial Latin America in, in the 19th century, the very beginning of it. And, you know, that's one of the ways in which Spain separates people of African heritage from indigenous is based on the idea of who's rooted in the land. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's what really struck me, right, mm-hmm. is how then is this changing um, this story and also like challenging what we what has happened in the past and what's mm-hmm. sort of been forced on people. Mm-hmm. So 
Oh, I love, I'm loving all of this. I, so when are y'all going to be, you know, publishing your books, teaching your classes? <laughs> like where, where's yeah. this all happening? Or when are y'all going to become my professor at this point? Like, I need to know, I need to know more because this is giving me some serious life and I need to not just cite you all, but to shout you all out as much as possible. Cause this is amazing. I'm loving these projects, mm-hmm. but I think to your question was maybe about the moving away from the water or the ocean. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So part of that has to do with, um, I think that sort of, um, metaphors of uh the aquatic the oceanic um the sort of um blue black studies we want to call it that Mm -hmm. right um i think is rightfully very central to how black studies has as a field has been crafted how we think about it uh theoretically critically etc um because of course water has played such a um significant role in how blackness has come into formation um, and continues to refuse, re- respond, et cetera, right? dream, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that I am trying to do in the second project is um, not put aside the question of, of water and the aquatic, et cetera, because I think there's, it, it, it is a metaphor and a, and a materiality that is rightfully sort of core to how we think about blackness. But I think one of the things that I've, I've been trying to attend to are these sort of marginalia, the margins of how we think about the question of um, blackness, you know, from my field, but also larger questions also of like how capital comes into development. Um, how do we think about our racial hierarchies and racialization as a process? Um, and one of the things I've been, you know, trying to think through is exactly the question of, oh, yes, exactly to see Kelsey um, King breaking down the sort of overdependence of water. It's like in many ways, the aquatic overdetermines rather than it just determining, right? Uh, which is to say, when I'm saying determining, it means that how there's a necessary relation. In fact, it just overdetermines uh, how we think about Black studies. Um, and so when we try to to um, move outside of it, um, I think we can actually create really useful, fruitful grounds, uh, my pun, grounds for <laughs> thought, right? Um, if we can step aside it or beside it and think about, okay, how do we think about dirt and soil and all of these other kinds of matter? How do we think about um, the silt in the water? Um, as sort of being very uh, formative of how we think about water, right? So, you know, Kelsey, you brought up the question of um, graves and disturbing graves, but, you know, one of the things that I was thinking about is, you know, all of the um, oceans that we sort of uh, use as our, our core ground for thinking blackness are composed of the decomposed bones of those who were thrown or jumped overboard, right? And these bones, the silt, um, are what connect the continents in many ways, right? Um, and as we're thinking about these questions of, for example, the Anthropocene and where does it start, where does it end, all these things, like we have to actually think about the question of, okay, how does, you know, the eroding, the erosion that's happening across, uh, along coastal cities or the slow flooding of um, predominantly black neighborhoods, et cetera, how is that actually going to, you know, sort of inform our analysis of this question of blackness and water? So for me, it was partially that, um, but also, you know, it was a question of what happens when we um, when we land, right, on the other end of these um, forced migrations, oftentimes, whether it's in the historical migrations or contemporary ones, right? Um, what happens on, on the ground of these spaces? Um, what are the things that are buried and that are hidden from sight? Um, and how does that, you know, become part of the sort of fabric of the everyday that we live in and we don't really attend to, right? Um, so... Uh, for me, it sort of comes from that sort of impulse to think about what are the the margins of how we think about um, blackness uh, historically, because I, I tend to work over long historical periods because I try to trace genealogies. 
but how we think about these sort of edges of blackness, um, how it comes into to creation um, alongside these sort of abstractions that we don't really think about um, that become invisible to our everyday sort of way of moving through the world. So that's sort of uh, where I'm I'm at with like thinking about that. Uh, again, I don't really have anything against this sort of aquatic metaphor. I think it's it is what it is. But also as someone you know who thinks who's trying to think globally, you know, the sort of question of indigeneity um, and um, the question of, for example. Um, on Caribbean islands where the question of sand and, you know, grit and all these things become very important because oftentimes these islands are going to be washed away by the ocean. So the question of, of um, alternative materials becomes really core. Yeah. I love that. I actually, I've um, just kind of, I've been listening, I listened to this other podcast and they were talking about metaphor as like a really powerful tool to, I mean, like to make theory and like these really complicated subjects mm-hmm. like more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. and I am also super excited about, um, the way you're engaging with like material and materiality, like throughout your work. Um, and like, as Satali said before, like, this is something that like engages us as like humans and like material beings and, mm-hmm. um, sensory bodies. Um, uh, and I just want to know if you could kind of elaborate on this approach, uh, to like using mm-hmm. like, materials, like kind of like as this medium through which you yes. work through these like very theoretical and like heady ideas but I think it does make it accessible to start to think about yes blackness through dirt or indigeneity yeah. through dirt like um mm-hmm. can this be a more universal tool for academics critical creatives theorists mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. oh I love that like thought to, to follow that train of thought um because it's something that I've been I've been trying to grapple with myself for a while precisely because I'm um I'm always suspicious of analogies, right? And I think that oftentimes what ends up happening when people try to use metaphors or try to use material um, objects uh, to uh, analyze the world around us, we can sometimes fall back on analogies as the way to make that um, leap. And analogies, I'm not, analogies, I'm a literary scholar, I shouldn't be saying this perhaps, but analogies are fine, I guess. Um, But what I oftentimes find is that, you know, analogies oftentimes reveal the very gaps between the sutras that we're attempting to make, right? Um, more than they reveal the similarities, you know, between these two objects, right? And I think that's actually why um, turning to maybe material or material matter can do some of that work because it does that work of saying, actually, there's a huge gap between these two things, right? When we actually attend to a, a material condition or like a material matter, right? So um, if it's in this case, dirt, you know, we can all say, okay, yeah, we all know dirt. We get it. We get it. Dirt and blackness, they're equivalent. But it's actually, no, it's not that they're equivalent. And that's where all the juiciness happens, right? And I think mm-hmm. it's exactly as you're saying, Lydia, like the, the sort of uh, teasing in or seduction of folks, right? At whatever level they might be at, right? Whether it's scholars, whether it's everyday person, you know, just saying like, yeah, you know, dirt is everywhere around us, right? Let's think a little bit about dirt, you know, and let's think about blackness a little bit about dirt. And now, as we're thinking about blackness and dirt, let's think about how these two things are are both determining each other, but they're not actually over-determining each other. And what happens in that space? And in that space, suddenly you have people bringing their own stories, their own sort of knowledges to the to the playing field. And I think that's where the richness really happens. And so you're exactly right. Like, I think I love the sort of, um, in my own work, turning to touchstones that most folks can see. I have some sort of experience with it, like breath and breathing. Most folks can say they have some sort of experience with it, right? Dirt or soil or sand. Most folks can say they've, or rocks. Most folks can say they've had some sort of relation to, to it. Um, one of the other, um, objects in the, in the, um, second project, I said guano, but it's really, you know, feces and shit. And so thinking about that, right? So like most folks can say they've had experiences with these things, right? 
Um, and I'm saying like, okay, now let's turn up our questions and our attentions to, to the question of racialization, to the question of capitalism, to the, to the question of, um, uh, colonial genocidal violences, right? And let us actually see how our everyday built environment, our everyday lived environment, our everyday embodied living is shaped by these questions. And then we can take it from there. And what are the stories you can bring to the table, right? So it's like, I think you're exactly right, Lydia. Metaphors, materials, they come together perfectly and wonderfully, but I think it's exactly in the gap between the two sometimes that we can actually find that sort of flourishing that, um, at least for me, makes me feel really like I can think generatively and richly, et cetera. Yes. And that's like that space for dreaming. I think you exactly. like- Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that, that sentiment, like make space for dreaming. And I think yeah. that's, I think that's what, that's the gap. And I, I love that. I'm going to keep that with me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you guys think this, but it reminds me of what artists do and that they don't try to make everything yes. like random, obvious. This is A equals B, mm-hmm. right? They're like, mm-hmm. no, I'm going to make this space available. And then you're going to jump in. You're going to have to figure it exactly. out. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, I love that. Oh. We're doing some really good so, dreaming, y'all. We're doing amazing <laughs> dreaming. <laughs> yeah, does anyone else want to... I mean, Nancy, I know you were our um, note taker and probably wrote down so many great ideas. Did you want to say anything, um, final remarks or anything like that? No, just thank you. I mean, yeah, the, as a note taker, mm-hmm. I'm trying to focus on the, to capture as much a direct quotes as possible. These, yeah. So many fabulous uh uh quotes and conversation happening so just thank you and i'm definitely thinking a lot about these metaphors with indigeneity as well because i'm sapotec and so we're also my work is also thinking about reclaiming our indigeneity and like what does that look and how and what way right the land practices that is definitely what you all were sharing right that sometimes in what ways does that um help us and move us and in what ways does that make us uh, limits us so I'm definitely excited and I'm looking forward to yeah, moving forward with this project and with you also. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Uh, art signs all around to everyone. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Bain, for being here with us and for all of your great ideas. And hopefully we can uh, keep building on them and keep working with you and keep hearing your mm-hmm. ideas and in conversation with you in the future mm-hmm. so oh, thank you all for inviting me to chat with y'all and for asking such wonderful, amazing generative rich just like soul giving life giving tender questions um of me of my project um i hope you all have the same kind of energy wherever y'all go you know not just for other people but other folks returning the same energy because y'all deserve it and y'all are amazing amazing art signs all around thanks for listening to the world we became map quest 2315 the culmination of an experiment on the study of race and migration using speculative design and digital methods. We'd like to thank all of our participants from the 2021 Cartographies of Racial Justice Summer Institute at the Migrations Initiative of Cornell University, with support from the Office of the Vice Provost of International Affairs, the Mario Ainaudi Center for International Studies, and the Mellon Foundation's Just Futures Initiative. You can learn more about the initiative at migrations.cornell.edu, where you can also find relevant links from this episode. Follow us at Global Cornell and hashtag Cornell Migrations. Original music was created by Jesse Scambari and David Gonzalez produced each episode. 
Much of the podcast is produced at Cornell University on the traditional homelands of the Cayuga Nation, and we recognize the Cayuga Nation's sovereignty and indigenous peoples who have lived and continue to live on this land. <laughs>